Good evening. Welcome to Other Goods. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Monica. Here with me I have Sean. Sean is our accountant. Uh, he will be talking us through tax facts today. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that we're on Wurundjeri land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Thank you so much, Sean, for coming and meeting with us today. I know that a lot of creatives are really freaking out at tax time, rightfully so. Money is no joke. And a lot of us were not fortunate enough to have access to or have learned financial literacy. And it's something that really scares a lot of people. And I'm speaking from my own personal experience. Money really terrifies me. Money comes and goes. It doesn't seem real. It doesn't feel real. But when the tax time comes, it really exists. We need help. Happy to help. Sean, can you just tell us about your history and your background? All right. So I'm fortunately or unfortunately, I've been doing tax stuff for a long, long time, almost 40 years. So I give you an idea how old I am. That is a long time. And uh, for most of that time, I've uh, been doing tax for people that are creative. So actors, artists, musicians, dancers, uh, photographers, um, just loads of people that work in that space. And um, generally the problems are similar to people in other professions and other industries, um, albeit that most in working in the industry are doing something they really love, but money is limited, money is very transient, uh, it's dependent quite often on funding. Uh, funding can dry up in an instant and there's uh, all sorts of things to be aware of if you're seeking some of that funding, what you need to be aware of, uh, what some of the requirements are. And generally, I suppose most people that work in that space have another job that might be within the industry. It might be something to do with what they love doing or it might be just a normal day-to-day -day type job that anyone else would have. Um, so, for example, I've got um, a client who's a director. He's involved in some of the shows that are on TV. He works in construction when he's not doing that. So it can be like that or it can be, for example, people that are musicians and I've had them where they, uh, they can't get regular income as a musician. So they've, uh, you know, they work teaching music at a school or even uh, guys that have taken the plunge and joined the armed forces to play in a band, things like that. So it's, uh, it's very common to have that, those restrictions on income and then on top of that, there's all the normal requirements of um, record keeping, doing your tax, because the, the sort of expenses that are incurred for the amount of income is quite high. So it's really important that you keep track of that. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest struggle, starting off huge actually, what is one of the most common questions that you get asked from people who are within the creative industry when it comes to doing their taxes or managing their money? So it's simple, in terms of doing their taxes, it's usually I don't know what I can claim as a deduction. So you know, the simple answer is, well, anything that is, is involved in earning your income. So if you're driving a car to earn your income, keeping the records of the mileage, the kilometres that you do, and keeping track of the expenditure on that. Um, anything else that you spend, so it could be on scripts, on music, on instruments, on equipment, uh, even when you're using your computer, um, all sorts of you know, union fees, all the th same things that other people might have, but it's just keeping track of that. And so you know, examples of things like, say, dancers, I've done a lot of ballet dancers over the years. As they get older, 
the expenses get very high. So particularly if they're in a strong performing dance company, they might spend thousands a year on vitamins and supplements that a younger dancer wouldn't spend simply because they're, mm. you know, they need that to keep pace. And so things like that you can claim as a tax deduction as long as it does specifically relate to the work you're doing. So that, that's the most common basic question. And then, um, then it gets into when they've got a, a job like that with a certain dance company or they're doing freelance. And how do I keep track of it? What do I need to do to earn income from a tax point of view? What record keeping is required? What do I need to give people when I'm doing work for them or performing somewhere? So it's all those other questions about then getting into freelance business type income. Mm. Speaking of freelance and trying to figure out how much, like what information we should be giving to a temporary employer, I find that a lot of people don't factor in. Like if you're with an agency, they automatically calculate things like you're super. I feel like creatives don't often think that that's something that they can ask for um, and expect on top of their rate. What percentage should we be expecting or asking for? Yeah, well the, the current super rate is 11%. So there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, if you're negotiating a rate, saying that you want to be paid X dollars plus 11% super. Now, it's quite common, and it's not just in the creative space, for freelance people in all sorts of industries, for they've negotiated a rate and then whoever's hiring them will say, oh, no, that includes super, we're not paying super. And it, it can get pretty tense. And um, so that's across the board in almost any industry. It's very common for employers that have, have the power to dictate what they will or won't pay and be quite unscrupulous about it. So it, it then becomes a case of you know, how much at risk, what are you willing to push for, whether you should be asking for that bit more for super. But as a, as a starting point, that is the, that is the rate. A lot of um, employers um, think that they can engage someone regularly for labour only, which most creative work is labour only, and not pay super, and not pay a reasonable rate. Um, only pay for the hour that you're working rather than a few hours for the time you've got to turn up there and maybe someone else doesn't turn up. Like I've had music teachers where they'll, um, they turn up for, to do three or four hours of teaching and then some of the students don't turn up and then the the company that's um, hiring them will only pay them for the one hour that they taught rather than the three hours that they've had to be there and things mm. like that and then won't pay super on top whereas it's a regular job. So a lot of those things are covered by fair work and also the tax office. The tax office are interested in who's not paying super when it is a labour only job. Fair work are also interested in who's not paying super. Um, so there's you know, that is a requirement, it is a legal requirement. I always tell clients of mine that are in business, if they're hiring people, labour only, as contractors, they also need to make allowance for whatever super they should be paying, if it's on top or if it's included in the rate, but they should be actually making the payment to the super fund. Mm. If, the, if the person they're hiring is being in business and you know, heavily trading and that, they might not want that, they might say, I'll look after my own super. Don't worry about it, but they've already taken that into account in the rate they've negotiated. Right. I guess slightly off topic, but a little question on that. If you say that it's, um, you say it's illegal, 
according to work cover to not pay superannuation. Yeah, fair work. Fair, fair work. work, sorry. Yep. Um, so within that, could you say that if, uh, if someone said, okay, I'm happy to pay you $50 per hour, but because you're asking for 11% super on top of that, I don't want to work with you. Mm. Could that be, I guess, I, I guess you haven't been, this is really off topic, but that, is that grounds for like unfair? I mean, I suppose they haven't like hired the person yet, so it's not like mm. an no, unfair part of the work. Negotiation. Right. As long as they're not paying you any less overall than the award rate plus super. Now the award rates aren't very high. Sure but they have to pay you the minimum rate plus, plus super. Right. Even as a contractor. Mm. So they can't, they can't shortchange you. A lot of people will do it. A lot of employers will do it. Mm. Is there anything else that creatives should be asking during that negotiation phase or is it really just like your base rate plus super? Is there any other fees or like amounts or charges that we should be negotiating at that time? It's all amount. It's all about how much you can negotiate and whether mm. you build into that like travel time, downtime, like I was talking about with those people that turn up for a three-hour teaching session and only get paid for one hour. The employer knows they can't do that with an employee, a casual employee, there's minimum three hours. Mm. But if you're a contractor, they'll just say, oh, no, I'm only paying you for when you're actually teaching. Mm. So, so employers, most of them know that. They know that, you know, if they call you a contractor it might give them a bit more leeway to do that sort of thing, to sort of shortchange you. Um, but it it's really depends on the position you're in. Mm. Unfortunately, most creatives aren't in a powerful position to be able to demanding and negotiating in strength, but there's nothing wrong with asking what's included in that. Mm. All right, I'm going to get into some of the yep, questions sure. that people have sent in. The first question that I have here is sent in by someone. I'm on Centrelink and I accurately report my income. Why do I owe so much money to the ATO this year? Hmm. So it could be because no tax has been taken out of Centrelink payments, <gasps> but then also they've earned enough that they're paying tax. So what happens once you go after a fairly, over above a fairly low amount, so you know, you know, once you earn there's 150 a fortnight or something. You don't have to earn much to start reducing your Centrelink. So what tends to happen is people start losing Centrelink, the 50 cents in the dollar that, that you start losing, plus you'll start paying tax as well. So that's why there's a problem with people not wanting to be paid when they're on Centrelink, and it's a disincentive, so the, you know, the effect of tax, if you like, of a reduction in Centrelink and some extra tax on what you're earning is that your tax rate when you first go over that Centrelink threshold and you get up to earning about $500 a week overall, Centrelink and income combined, mm -hmm. is your tax, and I, I call the Centrelink reduction a tax, is over 60 cents in the dollar. So when people complain about no one wants to go fruit picking there's a reason why. And they say pensioners, it's pension, the same for pensioners. They'll say pensioners don't want to work. They don't want to work because as soon as they go over it, and I've had guy, pensioners doing lollipop work, and then I tell them they've got a big tax bill and they've earned a few hundred dollars here and there from lollipop work, so they've reduced their pension and paying tax. So that's, you just go over those thresholds and you're starting to lose money here and pay tax there. Interesting. You said that there's a chance that Centrelink don't account for 
like they don't take out money for tax. They don't do that, full stop Centrelink? Not usually, Boo. no, not usually. So usually the Centrelink amount that you receive, if you're on a full Centrelink payment, you're under the tax-free threshold. So therefore, you don't need to pay tax. But as soon as you start working, like I said, you'll mm. start to lose Centrelink and then you'll start having to owe money on the tax. Did you see a lot of people, I don't really know how it worked during COVID when we were all receiving like $1,500 a fortnight, did mm. you see a lot of people having to pay a lot of money back in tax during that time? Uh, yes and no, depending on what the payment was. So some of those payments were taxable ah. and other payments were tax-free. I see. So in some cases, people received some, depending on how they were structured and what sort of income they'd been earning, um, some people were able to receive tax-free grants and so... That's been quite good. Others, it was taxable. So whether it was increased job seeker, it was taxable. Um, job maker, taxable. Some of the grants that were issued were tax-free. So some of the, I think it was $4,000 at a time, 4800 some of them. Some of that was tax-free. It changed year to year. So 2020, 21, 22 were all different in terms of which grants and payments were taxable and which ones were tax-free. Same for businesses, so big businesses, some of them got a lot of money tax-free, um, but then other parts of the payment were taxable. Mm. All right, another question is, I use the shed at my house as my art workshop. Mm. Can I claim any of my rent as a tax write-off and how do I calculate that? So it depends on the setup for the, um, for the shed. So it's the same as a room in a house. And um, the example the tax office always use is a hair salon. So if you're, like me, an accountant, say you're working somewhere, you work at home and you're just using the dining room table, you can claim for electricity and gas and there's different ways of doing that, but you can't claim for rent or if you own the place, rates and taxes on the property. If you've have on the other hand a shed and you're paying rent which includes the shed you've got that shed set up as a proper workshop then you can claim some of the rent because it's a it's actually a business workshop it's set up and it's not readily usable for other living purposes saying so like I said the hair salons the, the example the tax office always if you've got a room in inside your house say set up and say that how is one-tenth of the floor area of the house and you've got that set up as a studio. It's got all the equipment in there and you can't therefore go in there and, you know, sit down and um, watch TV or something like that because all the other equipment's in there. Then it's not readily available for other use so you can claim a percentage of the rent for that. Mm. And how would you calculate that? Say, for example, loose example, the area of the entire property is 100 metres squared and yep. your shed is 20 metres squared. Is that how you'd calculate it? Like 20% of the total property size? Well, not the total property, but the total living area. I see. So it's usually the, ins the internal dimensions of the living area and then it would be how big that room is compared with the overall living space. Okay, and you just calculate that as a percentage and take your rent That's out? usually the easiest way to do it, yeah. Sure. That's interesting. Okay, here's a good one. How do I manage my income if I have a small business as a sole trader and also I have income from my casual job? Mm. How do I manage that if I'm a small business and there's money incoming 
but maybe the person's like not actually like getting paid from that. How does that work with the ABN and the ATO? Right, so the casual job, which they're paid as an employee, mm -hmm. so they're using their tax file number for that. And then the, the sole trading small business that they have, so that's ABN income, if you like. So an ABN is a bit Australian business number, so that's for when you have a business, which can be sole trading, doing anything. So it's a case of really keeping track of that income. So you know that you've got this regular casual job, hopefully, that you might be earning, say, $20,000 a year from, and that takes you up the, the tax-free threshold. So you know that anything else you earn on top of that, you're going to have to pay tax on. So say you earned another 20000 which is still pretty low, you would, you would need to keep aside around 20% of that extra income that you earn. So I'm not talking the gross, but the income less expenses. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's really important to keep track of how much you're earning and how much you're spending on earning that money and then keeping aside, say, 20% of the balance. As that income goes up, then you'd need to keep aside a bit more. Mm. All right, I recently learnt, as of two hours ago, um, that me owning this business, I should probably have work cover. I have yeah. public liability insurance, um, but yeah. when it comes to work cover, is it for ABN, like sole traders, is work cover something that is necessary for sole traders who might not work out of, say, a shop like me here? Is it worth them having work cover for their studio space? How, do, how does that work? So normally a sole trader doesn't have work cover for themselves. Mm. So work cover covers your employees. So if you're employing other people to work for you, then you must have work cover. So that includes whether they're employees or if they're labour-only subcontractors. If they're people that come to do work here, like a plumber, you don't have to worry about work cover for that person. Because they're already insured? Well, they should be insured themselves, but also they're, they're here as a business doing a job, a one-off job, installing a hot water system or something, and they're charging you materials and labour. If you had something, someone coming in here regularly to do your visual merchandising setup or something like that, and it's a regular weekly thing, um, and you're just paying them labour only, then you should really be paying work cover to cover them as well. And... Super. Yeah. Right? So same again. That's mm. right. Yep. Super. So if it's regular, so if they're, they're virtually an employee or de facto an employee because it's regular, you're paying them on an hourly basis, you're in charge of what they're doing, then they're virtually an employee, so therefore you should be paying super. Right. And work cover. If someone is working in their art studio on their property at their house yep. and they fall and they hurt themselves and they can no longer create their product, yep. is there any insurance cover for them? I mean, I know that places like Craft Victoria have insurance for cover like that, I'm presuming. Yeah. What would happen if someone was to like hurt themselves and they couldn't yeah. So if someone's visiting anymore? your property and they hurt themselves, then your public liability cover, sure. that's what that's for. Right. If it's you, a fall at home or a fall in your business, then that's when you really need to have some sort of sickness and accident cover yourself. Oh, that's uh, new. Okay, so that's another line of, yeah. of insurance. It's expensive. If it's an employee oh. and they engine themselves at work working for you, then work cover. Right. We'll cover them for the wages that, that are lost by them. Mm. But f if for myself, I would need to have, what did you call it, sorry? 
some sort of sickness and accident sickness policy and accident. or income protection policy. Okay. Uh, those policies are tax deductible if you pay for them. Oh. But they're, uh, they, they're not cheap. Can that. we talk about tax deductible and what that actually means? Mm. When you say that, yeah. you're saying, <laughs> getting down to the real basics. Yeah. So say I'm earning $100 and I'm paying $20 in tax. If I purchase something that costs $5, I can take that off my $80 that is calculated. Like how does it, can you actually, you know what, scrap okay. that thought. Can you explain it to us please? Okay, so you said, so you, had, you weren't that $100 and mm -hmm. you paid 20% tax. So you've got $80 left, you paid $20 tax. So, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Say so you're doing a job and you're just and then you get taxed on the $60. $60 That's right, yep. Okay. So then you pay 20% of the 60, so $12 tax. Right, okay. So when you make a tax deduction, it comes off your taxable income. That's right. So yep. Okay, now I understand why companies are always spending all that money at tax time. Mm, yeah, yeah. So that the amount of tax that they pay is a lot less. That's right. So they might decide to spend money before the end of the year mm. to get the tax, if they're having a good year, to reduce the amount of tax they're going to have to pay, if it's money that they, w they would spend anyway. I see. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Thank you so much. I'm going to give you this. Hold on, Max. Companies at tax time spending lots of money. They're spending that money to reduce their taxable income. How are they saving money? Like, wh where is that? It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. How are they gaining money? They're not really gaining money, but what they're doing is they might decide to spend the money before the end of June. Yeah. To make sure they get the tax deduction into this current year, say, if it was before the end of June. Um, just to reduce the amount of tax. So the okay, spending so money does rather not save you money. Rather spending it on something that's going to benefit their business and instead of paying it to the tax office. That's right, yeah. But you don't, it's not dollar for dollar. No. So an example Tim was saying, you're only going to save, you spend $40, you're going to save $8 tax. So you're not saving money. But say some, you had a, that's why during COVID, the, the government introduced a lot of instant asset write-offs and the, where they said you can buy a big piece of equipment and you can claim a deduction for that this year. So it could have been, say, a, a courier business. You can buy a new van, costs you $60,000, and you can claim the whole 60000 as a deduction this year rather than claiming the write-off over five years or eight years of that car. So it's just like it's a better investment of your money to spend it on materials or something that is tax deductible rather than pay it to the tax office? Well, it, it just reduces the amount of tax, but it's only, it's only worthwhile if you're going to do it anyway. So if you want to spend that because it's good for your business and during COVID they were trying to encourage spending, so if you'd spend it now and then keep the economy going rather than holding on and not spending it until next year or the year after. Yeah. So they often introduce those sort of incentives to get money flowing through the economy, but it, it doesn't save you money. You've still got to spend money and you only yeah. get back, say, 20 or 30% of what you spend. 
20% or 30% of what yeah, you yeah. spent on materials or whatever it is. That's okay. right. Okay, yeah. got you. Yeah. Thank you. No problem. Oh, yes. Sorry, go on. Is, is that also like, um, do you have to do that before end of fin financial year, say, like you can, whatever you can, it's called? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can spend the money at any time. I mean, if you're doing uh, something, you, you buy what you need to earn the money that you can do whatever you're doing. It's just that often it's that, that's a time when people come to their accountant and say, we've had a really good year. We've made you know, $50,000. What could we go, do to reduce tax? So the normal things are we'll stop invoicing people. So leave that until July. Or spend some money now that you would spend or that you need. If you need a new vehicle if there's an incentive to do it say or a piece of equipment if as long as these instant write-offs are there then now might be a good time to do it yes can you claim the full amount if in a year i spent like a thousand dollars on canvases mm -hmm. does that thousand dollars come off my income or is it just a percentage of that no, no, the full thousand the full, will come off. Amount. So if that's your normal materials yeah. for what you're doing, yeah. um, then that's a normal deductible expense for materials. And so then you just pay tax on what's left after all the deductions. That's right, yeah. Cool. Yep. Cool. Yep. There, are some, there are some other things available to, in, for creatives and other people that use their um, creative talents, I guess, you to, to do to earn your income because of how up and down income is. So I can talk about that yeah. in, in a while. I yeah. can talk about it now. Yeah, absolutely, go for okay. it. Okay, so what this, so we've talked about earning income and keeping track of deductions. So all the things you spend, so it might be materials, it might be use of a vehicle, might be courses that you're doing to enhance your skills. So as long as it relates what you're doing. It could be hiring other people to work with you on a subcontract basis or employees. But what tends to happen, in, and it's, it's all sorts of uh, industries have this issue. So you've got like farmers have good years and bad years. Creatives have good years and bad years. Sports people can have good years and bad years. And it's the same for most, I suppose. Most people, it's irregular. And it can go from 100,000 one year to 5,000 the next. What is available is that you can, to a certain extent, average that income. So if you have a good year that has followed three bad years, you're able to average in a way that income across those bad years. So you can take those bad years into account to help reduce the amount of tax you pay on the good year. Okay, so there's, there's, there's a, yeah, it, it's, it's very simple to do it. it. There's just a question on the tax form that you were talking earlier about going on MyGov and doing your tax return yourself. There's a, there's a question in there. So the first thing is knowing what, how much you've earned in the bad years. So normally if someone hasn't earned much money, so they, you don't do anything about this averaging. And then the first good year, it might be, oh my God, I've got this huge tax bill. So it's a case of, your, there's a couple of questions where you note that this is abnormal income on the tax return. 
and then it, it takes that abnormal income, divides it by five, works out what the tax would have been if you'd only earned that one-fifth and uses that average tax rate there. So, you know, if you, if you earn, say, 100000 in one year, your tax rate goes from zero to 19% to 34.5%. So by averaging it, you're bringing down the average down into the lowest, lower area. So I've found quite often people do have a bump a year, one year, and it might be because they've picked up some work on a local production or they've... Um, gained a role somewhere that's, you know, it doesn't have to be sole trader or subcontract, it can also be employment income, that it's related to that creative work and it's abnormally high one year. And then so you can average it. The thing is if you then have these constant good years, the averaging runs out and you end up paying tax like everyone else. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's, way, there's a way of doing it could explain how to do it, but you've got to actually have the tax formula because say you put the figures in there. If anyone is struggling to do their tax and don't want to get caught out on the ATO, you can all see Sean also. By all means. <laughs> so speaking of things that you can purchase, can we talk about depreciation and what that actually means? Mm, sure. um, I have a question here that is, what's an easy way to deal with depreciation of purchases like equipment, laptops? the car thing you were talking about earlier, and like sub-question is what is depreciation? Mm -hmm. Okay, so depreciation, I mean, de depreciation is just the, the decrease in value of an item over time. So if you buy a laptop today, in three years time it's worth nothing. So that's depreciation in a physical sense. From the tax point of view, say you spend $1,000 on the laptop, the laptop lasts three years, you would normally claim the $1,000 over three years, so say $330 a year, to write that down. Oh, is that what you meant earlier yeah. about claiming the full cost of the car in one hit versus yeah. over the eight years? Yeah. Oh, so interesting. What, so what they allowed with COVID, and it's, it's still on at the moment, is that the current limit is $20,000. So if you're in business, as in you have an ABN and you're earning business income, and say you had a good year and you thought, I need to spend $10,000 on some equipment. Oh, if I spend it this year, I can write off the whole 10000 Can you do that normally? The question was, is there a limit to how much mm -hmm. you can claim? And you say $300. And that's at any one time. Now, <coughs> I've heard when I've done my tax in the past, you can claim $300 without receipts. But then if you have receipts, you can claim over that $300 yeah. threshold. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, that's not to do with the um, equipment though, that's oh. just to do with general tax deductions. Sure. So what they say, you know, on your tax form, if you're someone that works in an office, you can claim $300 for maybe a uniform that you wear and a few other things without receipts. If you want to claim more than that, you should have receipts for any of those expenditures. Mm. I'll just pop in a cough lolly. <laughs> any of you, like, um, you invested in uh, like a new website? That would normally be an advertising expense. So I would oh. normally claim that in the year you spend it mm -hmm. because it's, it's pretty much done. Oh, okay. So you normally, 
lots of things like that. I mean, they can be quite expensive to do. Um, you, you could write them off if you deem them to be equipment, but normally equipment's, um, oh, you know, physical the things. Depends what you're spending. So you know, there's not necessarily a limit, and businesses spend hundreds of thousands every year on on their website and their branding and things like that. And all that they would normally claim as a deductions as they spend it. So what you said just before about the website, you said to claim it within the year that you pay for it. Mm. What happens if you miss the cutoff and you want to claim it the next year? Can you? I mean, as long as you're paid for it, mm. you can claim it as a deduction. Right. Um, and it's for your business, mm. so it has a direct relationship and the, the money you've spent. I mean, the asset's really there once it's spent. It's not necessarily a physical asset that's going to depreciate. It's sort of depreciated, oh, if you like. Mm. Yeah. Normally we claim depreciation on physical assets, so pieces of equipment, motor vehicles, things like that. Mm, but when it comes to like a marketing expense, obviously it won't depreciate because it's effective. Yep. And it, I see. It's pretty much depreciated as soon as it's spent, really. I theory. see. You know. So who calculates depreciation? Like who said that a laptop, I mean, like I know that a laptop only lasts three years, but is there an actual list that says, okay, a car will depreciate, a brand new car mm. will depreciate over eight years? Is there someone who says that? Yeah, the tax office have these guides. However, it's based on the useful life, or the effective life of, of the piece of equipment. So like a laptop, it's probably going to last you three, four years, maybe. So you know that can be depreciated, say, if it's four years that the life is. In theory, that's 25% a year. But then what they allow to you, there's two different ways of calculating depreciation. There's straight line, which is that, say, say it's four years, 25% a year. And then there's diminishing value, which means in the first year you'd claim two times that. And then two times... <laughs> Sorry, 25%. So you claim 50% in the first year and then in the second year you claim 50% of the 50% is left. That's mm. left. Does that make sense? Mm. So basically instead of 20, 25% a year, it goes like that. Right. 50, 25, 12 and a half, dribbles on like that. And if we were to do our tax ourselves, we would have to be calculating that ourselves, right? Those sorts of things, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So there's, you know... Yeah. Well, it depends what it is. So if it's a big piece of equipment that's got a long life, yeah. you might get picked up on it. Yeah. Um, if it's something small, like if it's under $300, you can just claim it. Okay. Often, you might say something, a piece of equipment's only got a two-year life, yeah. therefore I'd do it either over two years or on the other basis, just claim the whole lot in the first year because in two years' time it's gone. Yeah. It's no, no longer worth anything. I have a question here from someone who mm. asks, how strict is the ATO on claiming research for attending shows, buying books slash records and movies, etc., when they are legitimately part of my research for my job? Mm. Yeah. So I, I usually do what I think is reasonable. 
So if it's definitely a case, if you just go to a few shows a year, say, it's hard to say that that is research. But if it's something specific, um, I would normally claim something like 50% of the cost. Um, and then I would argue the case for that, depending on what it is. So it's the same as when, um, a similar thing is when people travel for work. So if you're travelling overseas and you specifically plan the trip around some events that are on or visiting some, say, some other artists or attending a certain school or something like that, but only half of the time is spent on the trip and the rest is pleasure. As long as the trip was planned around doing that, you could claim, say, half the cost of the travel. Mm -hmm. But if you did, if you planned a trip to see family and you happened to visit the footwear factory of something while you were there, then it's hard to say that that was really a genuine business expense. What if you were going overseas and you were going over regardless, but you thought, hey, I'm going to set up some meetings and I'm going to go on a buying trip mm. while I'm there, I'm going to do all of this. Mm. Would you have to calculate it by the amount of days out of the entire trip that you did those things? Or mm. is there like a percentage that you could just go off if majority of the time you were doing work or even mm -hmm. working remotely? Yep. So the way I would do that. So if, if you were, were going there anyway, so the purpose of the trip was not work, it was family, say. Mm -hmm. Well, then the airfares to and from, you can't really claim because the purpose of the trip was, trip was in family. But if on the two weeks that you're there, you spend a week where you're in a location where something is based and therefore that accommodation was specifically to do with that, then you would be able to claim the accommodation for those days that you were visiting those sites. And mm. then the other accommodation that was related to family, you wouldn't claim. Right. And perhaps if you weren't staying the night, but you were taking a train to go visit a place to go and do something, you could claim those fares. Yep, that's right. Right. Yep. Okay. All right, I've got another question here, which I actually fully do not understand mm -hmm. um, at all. BAS payments, what are they? What does that stand for? BAS. Yes, what so is that? There's different parts of a BAS, but a BAS is usually related to GST. So if you're working in a business, a sole trader, you have your own business, you have that Australian business number I talked about, an ABN. Once your sales, so your total income from that business operation is more than $75,000 per 12-month period, then you should register for GST and be adding GST onto the amount you're invoicing or you're charging. Mm. So... What happens then is that you can register for GST if your turnover is lower than 75,000, but once it goes over 75,000, you should register for GST. When you register for GST, then you're required to collect GST and send it to the tax office. And you do that with a BAS, a business activity statement. A business activity statement. So that's how you record how much GST you're taking. Yep. If, like in the scenario that you just said, if you started claiming GST before you reach the $75,000 threshold and you're paying that money, yep. where does it go and can you get it back? If you're paying GST on, on goods you purchase. Oh, but like say, say you've got a business. Say this shop, for example. Yep. 
if this shop was earning over seventy five thousand mm-hmm. dollars, I would be paying or like I would be charging GST on products, yeah. right? If at say I was turning over fifty thousand yeah. dollars, but I registered for GST and I was paying GST mm. and I was taking GST from all of these products and paying GST back to the government, but I was yeah. still underneath that $75,000 threshold, yeah. would I receive that money back at tax time when I did tax no, for the not business? Not the GST. No. Not the GST. The GST would be gone. Yep. Okay, yep. so you really want to make sure that you're actually earning over 75000 because yep. if you do it underneath that, you will just be losing money. Depends who you're dealing with. So if your customers are people in the street, mm-hmm. then they're not businesses. So whatever they're buying from you, if you're collecting part of the sale price is GST, mm-hmm. then it's costing you that right. 10% of GST that you're adding on top of your... So you need to increase your prices 10% sure. to get the GST back. Right. On the other side, you can claim the GST you've paid on the goods you buy to sell. Oh, but like on wholesale uh, items. Yeah. And the GST that you pay on the rent and the GST you pay on electricity and other things. If you're earning under different. the $75,000. Yep. Yep, you can. But if you're, if you're supplying businesses, hmm. it's easy because they'll be registered for GST. You just add GST onto your invoice because they'll claim that GST back as a credit against the GST they pay. So. Great question. So the question uh, was, what is GST? What is the money for? And mm. where does it go? Okay, so it's a, it's a tax that was introduced 23 years ago by the government. So it's a consumption tax. So it's a tax on consumption. So that lots of countries have consumption taxes. Like the UK have the VAT. Uh, we have here GST, goods and services tax. So most goods and services that are sold there's GST on them. So if you buy something from Coles or Woolworths, there'll be GST on most items that you buy, apart from basic food items, which would be fruit and vegetables, bread, coffee. There's a whole, li- there's a whole specific list of items that don't have GST, but most items have GST. Um, if you come and see me, I charge GST on what I... So that's... You pay for those goods, there's an extra 10% GST charge for them and that money gets sent to the government every month or every quarter or once a year uh, with the business activity statement. So that's a a type of tax form. That money gets sent to the government, so it's government revenue. So Mm. it's a a way of raising revenue. Certain things are GST-free, like when you go to the doctor, physio, the dentist, they don't charge GST. Health services are GST free. Education, there's no GST on. So they're the key items that don't have GST on them. Right. So the rest of this question says, BAS payments. I've been freelancing for quite a few years and was always owed tax, but the past few years I've been shocked to have owed in the thousands. I can't say I'm earning more than before. What's the easiest way to manage quarterly BAS payments in a busy work schedule? Oh, mm. that's a really good question. Mm, yeah. So that, this would mainly, I think, relate to GST. So if the income's the same, the tax shouldn't be any more. So it's an interesting question in terms of understanding why they might be paying more tax. But it's basically making sure that if you are charging GST on what you're selling, making sure you keep aside that 10% GST 
so that you've got it at the end of the quarter when you have to do your BAS. And where should we put that? In a separate bank account? Uh, a lot of people do, and that's sometimes an easy way for people to manage their money. And mm. it's, it's a cash flow issue for a lot of businesses and a lot of sole traders that they tend to come up with these crisis points when the BAS is due. And the money's just not there in the bank because they've had to pay for certain other bills. And so it's really one way of doing it is having a GST account. A lot of people do that. Um, a lot don't, but I see more and more people doing that because they need to keep it aside and not just, you know, money in the bank when you haven't got a lot of money is easy to spend. Mm. So that's one way of doing it. Other, the other way is having a really good cash flow forecast. Someone like me does that where it's just you know what's coming up and you've got this money aside so you make sure that's still in the bank mm. through the one bank account. So Right. Yeah. Separate bank accounts is just another way of accounting for things to keep money aside for different things. Curious. Any other thoughts on GST, everyone? Oh, actually, I have one. Mm. Um, so, if one year a business earns over $75,000, they pay GST that year. Mm -hmm. And so, they're registered for GST. Then the next year, they only make $60,000 worth of profit. Yeah. But they've been paying GST. Mm. How do you... You won't get that money back. Is That's what we've understood, right? Mm. Yep. Is there a point where you can say, okay, I'm going to shut off GST now for this financial year, like this past financial year, yep. and then I'm going to keep going, and then I'll see if... I am looking like I will earn over the threshold and then I'll re-register for GST. Is that a possibility? Yep. So it's all based on what you expect. So if you expect that your income is going to be lower for the next year, you can de-register for GST and not worry about it for a year. Mm -hmm. It means you can't claim the GST you've paid on things you've bought, but you're not charging it on what you sell. Right. If you're dealing mainly business to business, I would always say it's easy, just as long as you're used to doing a bass, it doesn't matter because you're adding GST onto things. Sure. But when you're dealing with the, the public in retail in particular, you've got to have that extra money in your prices. So it would just so. be factoring it into the prices. Mm. I see. All right. I have another question here. How does paying taxes quarterly work? All right. So as well as the BAS, which can be quarterly for GST, once you earn a certain amount a year of net income, taxable income, and have extra tax to pay at the end of the year. If that extra tax to pay is more than $8,000, the tax office want you to, in the following year, to pay tax quarterly. So at the tax office, they assume you had a good year last year, you owe us $8,000, we want you to pay this year's $8,000 in quarterly instalments. Because they're anticipating you making the same amount of money and paying right. the same amount in tax. That's right. Right. If you don't make the money, they might have set you up for $2,000 a quarter. Pay-as-you-go, they call it. Pay-as-you-go instalments of tax. If you haven't earned that much, you can vary the amount you pay because they, they give you options of ways of calculating what the tax should, should be if your income's down. Most people don't want to pay more, so they, for, if the two thousand and they're actually going to earn fifty thousand dollars tax or um, uh, owe that, then they won't increase it. But it, to reduce it, it's qu was quite often quite common, especially during COVID, where people's incomes went down 
in all sorts of businesses, so you vary the amount of that tax that you have to pay. Mm. So there is a fair bit of flexibility in there. You just don't want to get the estimates too wrong because they don't like it if you underestimate. And then at the end of the year, you actually owed them 10,000, not the 5,000 that you said you were only going to owe them at the end of the year. Right. So on that idea of pay as you go and paying quarterly, yep. and the ATO will say, okay, you're going to pay quarterly now. Is there a point where you can go, actually, no, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather just pay in one instalment at the end. Is that a possibility? You can't change it once you set up for quarterly. Once Other, they set us up for one, quarterly. Well, you, can, you do have the option. So the first time they set you up for quarterly, as long as they think you're going to pay less than 8000 they'll let you change that to annual payments right. at the end of the year. But if they think you're going to owe more than 8000 they won't let you change it to annual. You'll have to go on quarterly, but then you'll have to vary it if the income is low. Mm. Okay. Another question here is, where do I begin? Where do I start when doing my taxes as a sex worker? Can I do it myself or do I get an accountant? Do it yourself or you can do it with an accountant, but it's basically the same things. So sex worker is like any other worker, any other industry. If they're a sole trader, if they're earning more than 75000 then they're liable for GST. Mm -hmm. They're charging GST on, so increasing their, their fees. Um, if they're not, then they don't need to be registered for GST, but they should be recording their income like anyone else mm -hmm. and their expenses and then doing a, a tax return. So, so it's just a matter a, of record keeping. It's record keeping, mm -hmm. having a spreadsheet or some other system. Um, some people start with, you know, there's lots and lots of accounting packages on the market. Um, some quite simple to use, some quite complicated. Um, depending how good you are, A, with computers and B, with admin type skills. Some people, I've got clients that start off quite small and start off with a, an accounting package. There's a few common ones, Zero, QuickBooks, MYOB, Reckon, all these packages that have been in use for a long time, or a simple spreadsheet. I usually recommend people start with a simple spreadsheet. If they still want to do paper-based, there's nothing wrong with getting a a cash book, they used to call them, which is what a spreadsheet is really, or an exercise book mm -hmm. and just writing things down and, you know, whatever's the easiest for people to use, I, I, I think is the best. There's no use having something that's complicated or if you're not tech savvy, something that requires, you know, some PC skills. Speaking of spreadsheets, Sean has given us a few different worksheets that I'll send to everybody after this um, seminar. Do allow one to two business days um, for us to all work on our budgeting and financing. All right, so there's that question. I have this other one. This one's talking about, um, let me find where it is. What are the best, oh, actually, I have a quick question on what you were just talking about on the different programs. Yep. Are there anyone, I understand that you need to be quite tech savvy for quite a few of them, but is there any particular program that has continuously come up as people really struggling with user error or like really struggling with the program that you'd be like, oh, maybe not that one? I think MYOB is probably a bit complicated for people that don't have a bookkeeping background. Sure. Um, and that's, that was, um, that's, it's really a business package. Um, zero, there's some basic versions of that that are quite good. QuickBooks, 
Uh, I use Xero more than the others, but it's not to say it's better. Some people prefer QuickBooks, others prefer Reckon, and then you can export information in different formats out of some of them. So once again, it depends how tech savvy you are. I'm going to ask um, one more question before we just take a five minute break mm -hmm. about taxes and super. So you yeah. say 11% payable to our super. When we're paying our super ourselves and we're managing our money ourselves and it's not done for us, and we have only paid, for example, maybe 8% into superannuation, mm. obviously we would like to put more in, but will we get in trouble for that? No, you won't. I mean, if you're a sole trader, say, and that's um, your income, you can put as much or as little into super as you want. There mm -hmm. are limits on how much you can put in every year and claim a tax deduction for. So there's the 27,500 a year if you've got that much money. Mm -hmm. But you don't, you don't get into trouble for not putting your own money into super. Right. Um, it's a case then, and the super is a way of saving. It's a tax effective way of saving, particularly if your income's higher. And they've, about five years ago, they introduced ways of not making it so good for people that have high incomes. Um, they started taxing more of their super. Uh, but um, it's, it's only tax effective once your income is really above about 40,000 a year because under that your tax rate's not that high anyway. Mm. So putting money into super saves your tax there but you're paying almost the same amount of tax in the super fund. Right. It is a way of saving and it is a tax effective way of saving but it's just the super funds invest in the same things that you might invest in, real estate, businesses or lending money to people. Right. So. As a rule with the money that we earn, how much should we be putting away to pay for tax each year? Like, would you say just put away 30% if you can? I'd say, well, if... It depends if on the rate earning of much, earning, of yeah. course. If you're not earning much, I'd say 20%. If you're starting to earn decent amounts, then, yeah, 30% and then, you know, it, it sort of goes in stages. But initially, if you kept aside 20%, you'd be well covered, assuming you had another regular job that was giving you sort of basic living... Mm. All right, thanks, Sean. We're going to get to the open forum. Okay, no thanks. problem. This is going to be a roaming mic. Um, is there different due dates for tax? your tax if you're a sole trader and when you, if you have like a regular casual job? Do you have to file your tax the same time as when your normal job is like July time, end of that, or is there an extension if you have a business to get your... ABN stuff done? Yeah. It's pretty much the same. So the end of the tax year is 30 June and then depending if you're lodging yourself or through a tax agent or an accountant. So most tax returns are due 31st of October if you're lodging it yourself. Mm -hmm. um, if you're lodging through an accountant or a tax agent then they ha we have a lodgement program that goes right through to May, June the next year. Oh, so right. so if you list the boat yourself you can go to a tax agent and this yeah, in theory they should have you on their list before 31st of October, but usually you can go and see. But it depends whether you've got tax to pay or not, whether there's a problem. So if you haven't lodged by the 31st of October and you do a refund, mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter. But you might get some interest charged if you were late lodging and then late paying. Mm -hmm. And the tax office in the last six months or so have started charging interest on late payments and started adding penalties on for late lodgement of things like the BAS, 
Um, so we've seen that happen for the past three years through COVID. The tax office seized right off on the penalties and the interest, so there wasn't anything. The tax office are pretty reasonable to deal with, though, I've usually found. So, you know, if you bring everything up to date, say you're three years behind, Mm-hmm. and you might have had a penalty on not lodging a bass and you know, be up for interest. If you bring everything up to date and pay all the tax that you owe, they'll usually consider, they call it remitting penalties and interest, in other words, crediting them back. So. And would you say it's pretty straightforward to file your own tax on the ATO or...? Yeah, the system's quite good to use um, as long as you know what you're doing. So lots of people that are, are familiar with it, in, particularly if they're, you know, it's a, they're a wage earner or on a salary, they have limited deductions and they know what their deductions are every year. You know, they pay their union fees, they buy some uniforms, um, they do a little bit of travel in a car, say. Um, lots of people lodge their own tax returns and the system's quite easy to do that with. It's when there's things like business income or they want to do some of this income averaging or they've got a complicated motor vehicle calculation to work out with a, a, a car, with a car loan and high motor vehicle use, then it's easy to get lost, I suppose, for lot, lots of people that don't do that work yeah, yeah. on a regular basis. So then it might be advisable you go and see an accountant. So I work in vintage so I go to markets I have an accountant from last year and he's given me kind of he's great but he's given me kind of wishy-wash ideas of what's okay with what I'm doing Mm. so I spend probably about 200 to 500 bucks a week cash Mm. with and it's pretty much non-recordable like it's all it's out of market so it's like all different people and he, because he knows that I work within like the industry that I do, he says that I can claim so much of a cash expense because they know that it's kind of makes sense within the industry that I'm working in. Um, but like, how much can I bank on that if I'm saying, you know, 500 bucks a week? Yeah. Obviously, that's like an exaggeration, yep. but it's, it's always something. Yep. So I'll give an example of where that does and doesn't work. So... Basically, so they do, the tax office know averages for lots of industries. So a good example is a restaurant. So I've had in the past clients where, you know, they've got a restaurant, they have a lot of people come to the restaurant and pre-COVID everyone was paying cash. So the sales were this much and the tax office know that if a restaurant sells, say, $100,000 a year worth of sales, worth of food in the restaurant, they're going to have bought about $30,000 worth of raw food and materials and they're going to have paid $30,000 worth of labour for wages and then the rest goes to pay the rent and other expenses with a bit of profit. So 100000 is probably a too low a number, but say it was a million dollars, 300000 on food and 300000 on wages. So what what happened is... The restaurant was saying that they'd spent $300,000 on food but they only had say $600,000 in sales. So the tax office said, you can't have bought that much food and ran a restaurant and only sold $600,000. You must have sold that. And you haven't shown any wages here. 
because what was happening, they were taking cash and paying all their staff cash. So if you're selling, if you've bought that much food, your sales must have been there and your wages must have been there. So therefore, you haven't paid people for the wages properly. You haven't paid the tax on those wages. You haven't paid the super on those wages. And you haven't paid the GST on all those sales. But you've claimed GST on all the food and other things, not just food, but other stuff you bought, because most basic food is GST free. So the tax office know those ratios. So with your sort of thing, they'll know if you're buying and selling clothing, if you're claiming you've bought this much, they know the basic margins might be so much and therefore your sales should be this much. Yeah. So as long as you're within, and you can look them up, you can just yeah. Google industry averages or industry um, benchmarks, industry benchmarks on the tax office and see what they say. So but there's no issue with me saying I spent five grand cash. Mm. No, no, no. Great. And then you without receipts, without anything. Well, you've got an explanation for it. Yeah, you spend I it. Have, okay, then what did you do Sunday. with all that stuff? I sold yeah. it. What did you sell it for? And yeah. you say I sold it for ten thousand. Okay, does that fit the industry benchmarks? But if oh. you're saying you bought for five thousand and then your sales were only six thousand, yeah. they might say, Well, that's pretty low sales. Sure. So either either you're overstating that mm. or you're understating the sales. So. Cool. Okay. Would it be crazy to carry around, like would this be insane, would it be crazy to carry around your own little invoice pocketbook that you could, like say if you're going to the market, mm. could you be like, oh, I bought three mm. dresses at $100 each from yep. this person and yeah. then like they sign it and then you sign it and then you've got a record? You like could that do. That's what he's recommended to me, but oh. I'm like, mm. there's no way I'm doing mm. that. That's yeah. Okay. Never yeah. doing that. Yeah. Realistically, that could be mm. a way of record keeping. Yeah. It's just not very. It could be. Yeah. The, the other way is to just record what you buy. So yeah. you you oh, so you, you, you bought you know brown jacket. Yeah. Fifty dollars, and then mm. you know you've sold it. If you want to go to that extent, yeah. every item you've bought and what you sold it for. Yeah. And therefore, does that make sense? So you okay. can keep it that way. In the yeah. same way, you know. Small items, if it's if it's a small amounts, then you can do that. Notebook entries, mm. um, but that's that's just another f way of record keeping. But that, yeah. they know there's lots of cash industries around still. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have two questions. Um, with record keeping, when you're offering a service, because I'm a tattoo artist and I'm not in. I don't need to write invoices for people because they're paying me straight away. Um, do I need to be keeping like a physical record of that income per person? Like this person paid me this much, blah, blah, blah. For depends, the depends how you record. So is it going through the, uh, your bank account or are you just being Yeah, paid so cash? some banks sometimes cash depending on the person. Yeah. So. so the stuff that goes in your bank account you don't need to record because yeah. that's going into your bank. Yeah. Um, it's just a case then of, you know, looking at your bank statement and then you've got your total sales on there. Yeah. And then the cash ones, if you can write those down, yeah. you know, person by person, yeah. they might ask for a receipt. They probably don't, I guess. They just pay you that. But yeah. you should, in theory, record that. Okay, cool. So any cash that comes in, then you just write a receipt for that. Yep. Okay, yep. perfect. Um, and I just had a question as well um, because 
we're opening a studio, so it'll be a tattoo studio, and it will be a collective, but it's not, it's not for profit because everyone will just pay their rent yeah. and that rent also goes to buying supplies, yeah. which then get redistributed. So really it's not the space isn't earning profit. Yeah. Do you think it's something that an ABN needs to be open for? Is it worth doing that? I just well, can't see why it would be. So you're going to rent the space from a landlord? Normally. Yeah, yeah. So normally they'll want the lease in someone's name or someone to be responsible for that. Yeah. So that, that person then has to charge the other people rent or they're in control of the money. Yeah. Um, that's often easier if one yeah. person has the lease. Yeah. As long as they are comfortable that the others are going to yeah. pay their share. Um, but then that person will become responsible for everything, you know, the, yeah. the rent, the electricity, the yeah. any other outgoing. So normally if it's commercial, then it's rates and taxes yeah. and insurances and all those sorts of things. The other way is, what, you're setting up a partnership with a bunch of people that everyone's going to share the rent or you set up a whole entity to do that. Yeah. Um, that can get quite complicated then and then who's in and who's out and who leaves yeah. after an argument. Because that's how it's set up now and it's basically a change of space with a couple of different people and we're kind of just like, is the ABN a bit pointless and actually a little bit more work? Mm. And it's well, kind it's of a lot of work if there's more than a couple of people involved. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, y you want to keep it as simple as possible yeah. and, and the easiest way, if someone wants to do it, that, that they be responsible but then yeah. it... it can be tricky with the lease in terms yeah. of they're then subletting the space unless it's yeah. you know yeah. it's leased on the on the proviso that it will be used and shared with other people. Yeah. But um, yeah, cool. insurances and things like that, public liability, who's responsible, yeah. all those sorts of things. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. That's okay. really helpful. I have a question. Oh, sorry, you have a question. Um, this is about claims, um, mm. claiming stuff. Like, say, if I have like I have a casual job, that's like an employee. Um, I'm employed by someone, like a company. Plus, I'm a freelancer, with like two kind of freelancing outlets. Like, what can I claim on like all three of the jobs, or is it like the one that earns the highest amount? I don't know. So it depends what the expense relates to. You normally claim the expense against whichever job it relates to. So, you know, what, what sort of work is it you're doing with it? Is so, it? I don't know, I'm like working retail as yep. one job and then I'm a freelance textile designer. So yep. I'm like, you know, claiming like buying the materials and the yep. ink and stuff like that. Um, but like I'm also driving to the job yeah. as well. So I'm like, can I claim both, like both mm. expenses or is it the one that earns more? Because the no, not job necessarily. Work. So you would claim the materials and that against the freelance work, the design work, because it relates more to that. The driving, I guess, I'd you know, you can decide where to claim it, but it's I'd probably just claim it on the against the employment. So you're driving from the casual job to the business freelance work. So you claim it on there. It doesn't really matter with that which one you claim it on. We can only we can only claim it once. Oh, okay. So, so you can't so claim ten percent of petrol three times. No. 
Right. You just claim it against one one or the other jobs. So, yeah. yeah, so I can't claim like one materials on one and then something no. on the other. It no. has to be one, just one of them. Yeah. So yeah. the one that like that I want to claim them, I guess. Yeah, um, just the one it relates to mainly is the yeah. one you claim it against. Yeah. Why is that? Why can't we claim if we're using our car for multiple different jobs? Mm. Why can't we? Well, you can you can claim. You, you just can't claim the same kilometres twice. So if you're, you know, if you're, you're doing a whole lot of driving for your, your employment job mm -hmm. and you're also doing a whole lot of driving for the business that you've got, you can claim the separate kilometres and the separate percentage. You might be 10% of your car expenses on that job and another 10% on that job. But you can't claim the same driving. So claim against the same, oh, between the 250 kilometre and 300 kilometre mark, I'm claiming that 60 kilometres and I can't claim that twice, but I can claim the 200 for 250 and then the 60 for 300. That's right, yep. That's a good way around it. Mm. Okay. Right. I have another question I'd like to ask. Oh, are you checking so I just learnt this evening that, shout out to Lucy Pitt from Western Edge for really making this clear for me, I learnt that as a business, a small business, I can be paying myself a wage. That's right. Not as a sole trader though. Crazy. Excuse Okay. So a sole trader. <laughs> Let's <laughs> start again. Yeah. All right. Okay. Please explain. So, right. So a sole trader is just you as a person. Mm -hmm. So you can't pay yourself a wage because it's just the same income going. True. You're just taking it out of one pocket and putting it in the other. Mm -hmm. So, But if you change the structure of your business mm -hmm. and set up as a company, then the company can pay you wages. Even ah. though you're, you might be the sole director and sole shareholder mm. of your own company that runs this business and then that if say that was turning over 300,000 a year, mm -hmm. you might decide to pay yourself say $100,000 as a salary from yes, that company. Yes, I say yes to yeah. that. And then leave the rest of the profit after paying your wages in the business to be reinvested in stock and things like that. Right, okay, well that explains why I had written down this question for myself, which was am I allowed to pay myself if I've started a personal business and how do I do that without looking dodgy to the ATO mm. and that, mm, I shouldn't be a sole trader mm. for that. Okay, so, so say for example, if I've got this business here registered as a sole trader, mm -hmm. um, I would have to change that into a company ABN Right. Or I would have to get a company ABN, transfer all of that over, and then I'm employed by the company. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Can I? Can you have a sole trader ABN and a company ABN you in can. conjunction with each other? Well, you can. I mean, right. they're two separate legal entities in mm -hmm. theory. So a company is a separate legal entity to a person. But a sole trader is the same legal entity as the person earning wages or whatever else. Right. So the... the the downside is that it costs money to set up a company. Mm. So it would normally cost something like $2,000 to set up a company mm -hmm. and then say another $1,000 a year to keep it running with it's just extra accounting and fees and ASIC fees so a company needs to be registered. Um, and then you've got to do a separate tax return each year for the company versus yourself. Right. Separate BAS or different BAS, and the, the BAS would be in the company and not you as a sole trader then. Mm. So you, you, it's 
it's worthwhile doing if you're earning enough money to do it and there's certain ideas on where that point is. The other side of it is companies do give some legal protection um, but say, normally say if you, if things went bad in the economy, you had to close up, you couldn't pay the rent, most landlords get you to personally guarantee it anyway so it doesn't absolve you from paying say rent if the company went into liquidation. Right. Uh, because you would have guaranteed it personally. Sure. So, um, okay. Yeah. On that whole sole trader company energy, what is the process really of applying or going through? Yeah, what are the motions of, of applying for and becoming a non profit organisation? So, non profit organisations, first thing you need is you need five people involved. So you can't set up a not-for-profit as, as yourself. You'd need five people, so you have um, five members and then you have to have a committee. Uh, you can't just have one person running it. And then there's all sorts of registration requirements. So it's, you know, there's registration. If it's uh, an association rather than a company, it has to be registered with Consumer Affairs in Victoria. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's a company it needs to be registered with ASIC so it can be a company it's a different type of company to a business company mm. um, and what about a general organization mm. like an org like dot org is that are they all non-profits uh, most are I'd say otherwise mm. they wouldn't there'd be no point using that um, there's there's differences between what's a not-for-profit and then what's a registered charity so you know registered charity is a type of not-for-profit but it has to have a charitable purpose. Um, so most not-for-profits are not charities, but most charities are not-for-profits, I guess. I see. Um, but even as a not-for-profit, depending on what is going on in the not-for-profit, there'll be GST to pay. So mm -hmm. it doesn't stop the GST registration requirements. So I've got like clients that have set up, or Canadian guys set up a nice hockey club now that has to be registered for GST, it collects lots of fees from the members and sells stuff at their training and that, like drinks and chocolates and things like that. Mm. So it's, it's a not-for-profit in terms of nothing's, no tax is being paid, but there is still the GST. So it's still charging and collecting that 10% and sending that to the tax office each quarter. I see. Does anyone else have some questions, Tim? Uh, going back to sole trader and um, if you have a if you have your personal account that yeah. you get paid your casual job in yeah and then you have a business account uh, and you get paid into your business how you say sole trader you don't pay yourself so do you just use the money in your business account for personal stuff as well can Does that do. make sense? Yeah, that yeah. that's that's called drawings. They call it. So you okay. can draw, take drawings out of it. So your business sells stuff, yep. goods and services. It pays expenses. Yep. And say at the end of each month, you know it's made a thousand dollars. Well, you can draw that out. You might have already drawn it out two hundred dollars a week out during the month. Yeah. And that's called drawing. So you might take it out of the business account, transfer it to your personal account. It's not wages. It's not wages, so they're called it's, drawings, yeah? It's and do you have drawings. to keep documentation of that? What if you're out and about and you're like, oh, I only have my business card. 
let me buy yeah. a couple beers yeah. on my business card. Yeah. Do I need to be like, ah, oh, that's my drawings, or that's mm. fine because that, yeah, mm. I don't know. No, what most businesses do, so they might have their accountant or they might have their own accounting system set up and that's on the bank statements or on the credit card and let's yeah. go through that and saying it was, you know, that was for materials, that was for rent, that was for that, oh, Joe's bar, oh, well, that's drawings. And then drawings gets added up to the money that can be taxed is your profit that's taxable, right? Yep. Because you yep. don't pay tax on that before you use it now you do yeah so the so the sole trader income the amount you draw out yeah is doesn't matter in terms of the tax you pay it's the income less the expenses that are deductible but drawings are part drawings are part of the income yeah yes yeah well they're part of your expenses hopefully the drawings are less than the profit because if you're drawing out more than you're making then you'll run out of money yes so yeah yeah, yeah yeah so the drawings the drawings are just what you take out you might put money back in so that's called contributions and drawings and you put money okay, in and, and you take money take out, out and put it in take it out okay, yeah. but that's not part of the ins and outs the incoming and outgoings yeah, yeah, of yeah. income and expenses yeah okay cool yeah and okay cool because yeah i was always confused when you're a sole trader Mm. How do you pay yourself if you don't pay yourself because you're a sole trader? Mm. How do you get the money? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Drawings. Thank you. Yeah. Anyone else? Sorry. Anyone? Over here. Um, I, I'm like a very sporadic actor. I've got like a casual job on the side. And I spend, I spend money on lots of things towards acting, like acting classes, union fees, headshots, um, yeah, a list of other things. But I'm not, um, I'm very sporadic, so I'm not making tons mm. of money off of acting. Yeah. Um, can I still, like if I'm earning very little from it, can I still, is it worthwhile deducting, like making note of those or like meant, I don't know. How, yeah, mm. trying to deduct those things from my taxable income from acting. Yes, yeah? definitely. So there's different ways of treating that. So say you had a history of you had some good years and you made some money from acting and then you had a few lean years where there was hardly any income but you still had these expenses. So those, those were loss years. Well, if you've got the history of profit then you could claim those losses against your other income. So it's like you might have made 20,000 from your other job and you've lost, say, 5,000, then you would claim that 5,000 loss against that other income. If is, sorry, sorry, is that loss like the following year I make 5,000 less? Is that mm. what you mean by a loss? Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, say, say you've actually you'd had... $1,000 income from acting, but yeah. you spent $6,000 okay. on headshots and all those other things you mentioned. Yeah. So you've, you. you've actually lost money. Yeah. If you've got a history of making money, then you can claim that. And that's usually they look at the last few years. Have you got a history of making money? So we'll allow that loss to be claimed because there's a track record. If you were starting out and you've never, you'd never made any money out of acting, mm -hmm and the first few years you lost money, 
the tax office would say that's that's a hobby to start with. Okay. But what we would do is you would treat it as a carry forward loss because you expect to make money. So I'd still record it and it can be recorded on the tax return okay. as a carry forward loss to be claimed in the future against when you do make money from acting. Okay, so I can't or wouldn't, like I can't claim it in those early low profit Depends. Depends days. how much income there is. So if your income from acting, say you had $25,000 of income from acting, but you mm -hmm. spent 30000 so you lost money, but you've made, and it, it's a general guide, is 20000 If you've made 20000 income, yeah. then it is a legitimate business. Yeah. And therefore, the $5,000 loss, you can claim against other income. Okay. But if, if the income was only a couple of thousand, they'll just say, oh, still a hobby at yeah. this stage. Yeah. Unless, say, you were doing, you, you had some acting ones where you were paid as an employee or you're doing some other related work, you got yeah. some extra work and you did a lot of extra work and you also did this acting but lost money, then you, it's so related mm. that I would claim it yeah. against the other one because okay. it's very much all related. Yeah, okay. But if you were working in retail, and then you did some acting, but you didn't make any money out of it, or you lost a bit of money, then it's not relatable enough. Okay. Yeah. What's, what was the, um, the amount you said for it to be over, um, to be considered not a hobby? Yeah, it's generally 20,000, 20,000 20, 20, for that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it's it's not a hobby as soon as you make money out of it. So as soon as your net is a profit, then it's not a hobby. So the tax office want to know if you if you earned three thousand dollars from doing something. Say you only spent two thousand, so you made a thousand. Well, then you know that's income, so it's profit. Mm -hmm. but it's not a hobby. Oh, okay. But a lot of a lot of people. Well, they'll lose money those first few years or not even the first few, you know, it can go on for a long, long time. Um, so I um, sell vintage as well. Um, I haven't gotten to the stage of getting um, uh, well, claiming tax or anything on it. Um, but I have heard that, because I use a online platform I've heard that uh, you can the ATO will request that you pay tax for things that you've sold for years prior is that true they could do yeah depending on the if it's worth their while chasing it so okay. if you've sold a thousand dollars worth of goods and you've spent 500 on buying goods you know you know if you haven't reported it the chances of being the tax office tracking it down are probably low. It doesn't mean to say you shouldn't do it. Mm. You know, I can't tell you not to do things. But, yeah. you know, if you're worried about it, I, I wouldn't worry too much. Um, but if it was significant and there's definitely money going through, you might pop up on their radar. Um, the tax office will pursue certain things that are reported to them or not reported to them. 
Um, like I talked about that, that restaurant earlier. I mean, they've got that, they do that data matching I was talking about where they know the ratios, but it'll usually be on what's been reported. So um, it just depends. But they do occasionally, they might target an industry and look at whoever's selling online. Uh, I guess I, because I've always worked um, uh, full-time or part-time as well mm. as doing that um, and I fluctuate between doing it a lot and then kind of having maybe a few months off. Yeah. I've never really focused on turning it into a full mm. business but um, I just have a lot of friends um, just having small businesses now and I see that there's, um, I'm, and I guess my question I'm trying to say is, is it beneficial to, more beneficial to be a small business and to claim tax on things than the work put in for how much I might be fluctuating of the work I'm yeah, putting in. Yeah. I mean, it, it's at a very low level, most people, when you start adding up the costs they've incurred, that, you know, a few thousand dollars, you probably didn't make any money. You might think you've made some money, but I know when I've often tallied up, people think they made a few thousand dollars. Then I start looking at all the different expenses and did a motor vehicle and they've been driving around picking stuff up and doing this and that. There's no profit there anyway. So it, it was sort of a hobby. But, I mean, if it, if it becomes a... If it is a business operation, then you should treat it as such. And if you want to do it seriously, then the only way to make money is to you know, be serious about it and treat it as a business. If you use your car occasionally, like for yeah. work, is there like an amount that you don't have to yeah. keep receipts or you can just... Yeah, you don't, you don't have to keep receipts, say if your, your total motor vehicle travel that you want to claim is less than 5,000 kilometres a year. Ah, so okay. roughly yeah. 100 k's a week. Yeah. Um, but you should keep a logbook. So it's always okay. a good idea to keep a logbook. If your pattern is consistent, you know, in theory you should keep a logbook for every trip that you make. Yeah. But if you've got a, a, a definite pattern that you know, you know, and you keep a logbook for a certain period, about six weeks is usually required at least, um, and that pattern is consistent, and you're going here to pick stuff up, you're going there for a second job, and you're doing this or that, um, then you can, you've got the pattern and you know it's, you know, 100 k's a week, say, and therefore yep. you just claim the 5,000 k's a year. Yeah. Uh, if the pattern changes, you should do a logbook again. Yeah. Uh, often, for a lot of people, you know, it's backtracking and saying, well, where do you go every week? Yeah. And that trip's, you know, 20 k's, that one's 40, so therefore we know that you're going to be spending that much. Cool. Thank you. about the ABN as well like if I have an a I have an ABN I had an ABN for a while but like I do multiple things yep. like say I did like I don't know I did textiles and then I did modeling or something and reselling clothes as well but they're all under the same ABN yep like is that is that like is that allowed or is that like yep. in <laughs> fact it's the you have to do that because you can only as a sole trader you can only have one ABN yeah you might have different um, Sub-ABNs, if you like, so the, what happens is, so you can have a, a company that might have four restaurants and they might have their ABN 
slash 001 for one, slash 002 for another, and the, they might be different restaurant names, Joe's Restaurant, Max, Steve's, whatever, um, but they're still the same main ABN. So you, you have one ABN, the same as you have one tax file number. So do you like, do you like add your own like slash on that, or is it like a... No, you, you can, if you need, if you need them, you can register them. Oh, you register them. Yeah, you can register a separate one. Oh, yeah. It creates more of a headache than anything yeah. often if it's small, so I wouldn't, certainly yeah. wouldn't bother. You can, you can have different business names with the one ABN, so yeah. you can call yourself, you know, you can register four different business names depending on what you're doing, yeah. and then use the same ABN. Um, so, if I'm coming to you for you to do my tax return, yeah. what, how would, what's the best way I should collate my information? Is it just simple as outgoing expenses, income, or do I need to sub-bracket the different types of expenses that can be made? Yeah. All that makes life easier, so some people you know, still give you a pile of receipts, but usually these days people give me a spreadsheet of some sort, um, particularly younger, younger people, a bit more savvy. Um, they're familiar with things like spreadsheets, so that's the best way, a spreadsheet saying there's the income and these are the expenses and these expenses were materials, these were tools, these were rent, this was for whatever else, and then the main headings and there might be a few odds and ends like a uh, a registration fee or a working with children check or whatever it is, things like that. So um, that's the easiest way. The spreadsheets that we talked about earlier that Monica's got, that um, they're great and then it makes life a lot easier and then, you know, if there's questions to ask, I can ask them. Nice. One more. Is it true that they randomly audit? Is the system, like, because I've been told that like yeah they can tack in like look into things if they think something's dodgy there but is it true that there's a random system that just like spits out people and then they catch up on them? I've, I've had quite a few audits but I've never had a random audit. Great. It's always because they look something, into something something like an expense that was claimed was high. Right. And and it, look an audit isn't necessarily someone no. visiting your house no. and that sort of thing and going yeah. into it can be like that restaurant example I gave that was a pretty serious yeah. audit and they ended up with a bill of a couple of hundred thousand dollars in unpaid GST and pay-as-you-go withholding tax on wages mm. but often an, an audit can be you just get a, an email or we'll get a letter saying we're reviewing the expenses or they might just change something so I've had um, people where they, they overclaimed a certain expense on a rental property and the figure just got changed to what the tax office thought. And they're actually right. It was just a mistake we'd made on that tax return. So, um, But it, an audit doesn't mean someone visiting. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's off. And often they'll say, what happens now is they'll say, um, oh, we're reviewing this that you've put in your tax return or the business claim and then you wait and you never hear anything or in what I did initially when that started happening I'd, I rang up 
one and they said, oh, we're sending that out to everyone in that industry. Doesn't move. They weren't looking at anything. They just said, we're going to look at them and they never did. So. Um, just re what you said about um, uh, get, getting over the 20,000 a year um, threshold to be not a hobby and uh, pr it's preferably then to preferable then to claim those deductions. What if I never make it over that? When do, when do I, can I never claim? No, it's it, the, the 20,000, if, if you've received 20,000 income, but you've yeah. still made a loss, you can claim that loss. If you've never get 20,000, but you've got losses, and then you've, you've accumulated $10,000 in losses, mm. but in the next year, after a few years, you have $10,000 income and only a couple of thousand in expenses, so you've actually made a profit. Mm -hmm. So you can then deduct those losses against that profit. Your past losses? Yeah, your past losses. Not, okay. You don't have to hit 20,000, because as soon as you make a profit, they'll, they'll say you're a business. Yeah. yeah. If you make losses, then they want you to show that you're a business to claim the losses. Okay. So do I have to make a profit to claim deductions? Yeah, it's either, it's either you make a profit or you, you have $20,000 in income, but you've made a loss. Okay, and yeah. uh, your, I, it's a loss if you're spending more on the thing yeah. than making, yeah. than the income, yeah. profit, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and most, most actors, do make a loss because yeah. of all the it's expensive all that stuff mm. okay. thank you thank you everyone for joining us for tax facts mm. this was a very much needed opportunity for everyone to be listening to you today sean thank you to sean kelly from show and kelly accounting we've really appreciated having your expertise like I said, this was a really required resource because the amount of people that have reached out to me saying I had no idea what to do at tax time or, yeah. you know, really truly freaking out, it's just the number is huge. So I feel like if you're open to it, we might have another one of these down the yeah, line. By all means. Um, yeah. If not next month, then next year. But just as a reminder, when is our tax due this year? So 31st of October if you're lodging yourself or you can go and see a, an accountant or a tax agent. And I will forward everybody Sean's details because I know for me personally, I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> thank you all so much for coming today and thank you, Sean. Okay, thank you. Thank you.